Thank you, Pastor. Good evening, everybody. So glad you came. Praise the Lord. We're going to have a beautiful service. So let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 9, and we'll begin flowing in the Holy Ghost. Praise the Lord. Um, so this evening, we are talking about one of the most powerful and important things in your life, and that is who you are. Who you are is going to determine what you will attempt to do. You are not going to attempt something if you don't feel that you are qualified to do it. So a lot of times you will miss out on the life God actually wanted you to have because you don't think of yourself the way God thinks of you. So one of the things God does as soon as we get saved is he begins to change our view of ourselves. So let's say your view of yourself is the, the fruit of your ego or your pride or your vanity or your flesh. So God breaks that down. He starts to break it all down and reduce it to ashes. If your view of yourself is full of insecurity or fear or self-doubt or second-guessing yourself or unworthiness or feelings that God would never bless you or use you or even that God doesn't love you or God doesn't like you or God doesn't want to bless you, whatever you think of yourself is controlling the decisions that you're making every day about what you will pursue with your life. And so learning who you are, having the identity of the Holy Spirit, learning what are the identity definers that come into your life. What are they? What are the things that are defining you as a person and getting you to a place where you're like, I need to purge every defining thing that isn't coming from God. Everything that blames you, everything that accuses you, everything that judges you, everything that makes you weak, everything that makes you false, everything that makes you insecure, anything that makes you doubt who God can be through you. This is the big question. Who can God be through you? And if God can't be who he fully is through you, then we have to get rid of that thing inside of us that is uh, hindering God from flowing through us and being who God is in all of his manifest presence. So since you were a little kid, someone has been chewing on your identity. Something has been cannibalizing you. And so we're going to talk about all those things. We're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 9. The king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God. And Seba said to the king, 
there is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, where is he? And Seba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face, prostrated himself, and said to David, Why are you talking to a dog like me. See, what had happened to him when he was young, the Bible says that the maid dropped him. And when she dropped him, it broke his legs and he became a cripple for the rest of his life. So he was identified by the things in his life that were deformed. And this is how a lot of people are. Things in your life that are deformed tend to decide who you are to yourself. God cannot use you if you cannot agree with what God thinks about you. You've got to be able to say, I am what God says I am. And I can do what God says I can do. And I can be who God says I can be. This is powerful. And it is one of the most critical things that must happen to you as a man or a woman if you are to find out why you were born, where you are going, and how to get there. Because it's the devil's job to tell you that you're not special, that you are not unique, that you are not highly gifted, that you are not supernaturally endowed with power from on high. It is Satan's job to convince you and persuade you through all the different ways we'll talk about that you are not someone God wants to use or that you are not someone that God can use. So he's got to damage your image, the image of yourself to yourself. Because if I'm no good, if I'm rotten, if I'm worthless, then I'm not going to be, you know, trying to do something big and great for God. I mean, all the people that have ever done anything had to have this particular encounter with God. They had to have an identity-transforming encounter where they left who they were without God and they entered a new creature with God, through God, for God, and by God. That had to happen to them, because if it doesn't happen, then you will not expect God to use you in these unbelievable, impossible ways. So everybody lift your hands and say, I'm going to be amazing, because that is God's will for my life. Okay? So you read then in Psalm 139, if you want to go there, you can read what God thinks about you. For you formed me and formed my inner parts. You covered me inside my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works, and that my soul knows right well. 
my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and curiously put together, woven together in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes did see my unformed substance, and in your book they were all written, even the days that were ordained for me, when, as yet, there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts, O God, unto me. How great is the sum of them. If I would count them, if I would count how many times you think of me in a day, they would outnumber the sands of the sea. So value, your value, this is something you've got to settle. You've got to settle this. At some point, you need to find out what you're worth. And then when you find out what you're worth, you've got to accept it. So, anything that is worth something is worth whatever someone is willing to pay. You have the Mona Lisa. As you know, that's not a very good-looking person. <laughs> so it's not something I would buy. I would not buy it for $5. I would not put it on my wall. Yet there are people who say this is so great that it is worth more money than there is on earth. The value is called priceless. Now, I don't know who these people are. They're not anybody I know. I would not buy the Mona Lisa and put it on my wall and then just go, oh, priceless, priceless, priceless. I, I wouldn't do that. However, I would do that with my mother's picture, or I would do that with my wife's picture, or I would do that with my children's picture, and I certainly would do that with my 18 grandchildren. Right? I would do that. Because to me, it's worth it. So, the beginning of your identity is you discovering what you're worth. So, Jesus came for you, died for you, paid with his life for you, the price was established. You are worth the life of Jesus. Jesus is God. God said, you're worth me, what I'm worth. So the price for you is me. So God said, you're worth what I'm worth to myself. And the price has been set. You cannot change it. This value does not come to you when you're saved. This value was given to you before you were saved. So even before you were saved, God said, this is what people are worth to me. Every person on earth is worth this to me. So everybody of every nation, tribe, tongue, and color is worth this to God. This is the beginning of the healing of your identity. Because if we can't heal your identity, you're going nowhere in God. You're going to live a normal life with no miracles, no signs, no wonders, no supernaturalness, 
and you'll be able to take credit for all the good and bad that happens. But rather, when your identity is established and you realize who you really are, then you're going to do things that are way crazy and supernatural, and then you'll have a life that only God can take credit for doing. And everybody will say, well, you could have never done that. Only God could have done that. So your life is a life that only God can get credit for. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So if you haven't done anything so far, it's because you just don't think very much about yourself. And that has to change today. Go ahead and hug the person next to you and say you are beyond value. Say you are priceless beyond all treasures and wealth. I have 18 grandchildren, and I just feel so rich when I'm in their company because there's something inside of me that's unreasonably in love with them. And because I am in love with them in such an unreasonable way, I tend to want to give them everything I have. So before they can speak, I'm already telling them everything I have is yours. In other words, I'm already giving them the keys to the car when they're just three years old. Because when something, when you love something, when you truly love it, sacrificing is not a sacrifice. It's only hard to love someone when you don't love them. Then everything is hard when it comes to them. But if you love something unconditionally, then anything you do for them, no matter how hard it is, and no matter how much you have to sacrifice, doesn't feel like a sacrifice. If one of your children or grandchildren were in danger and you could save them, you would throw yourself in front of the bus or inside the mouth of the lion and let them get away while you get eaten. It would not seem like a sacrifice because when you love a thing, It's never a sacrifice to sacrifice. When you love yourself in a healthy way, you will believe that there's not anything that God cannot do through you. And that's the kind of church we want. We want a bunch of housewives with curlers performing signs, wonders, and miracles at H-E-B. We want a bunch of nerdy people, weird people, strangely shaped people, unusual personality types to have God move through them in wondrous ways that only God can get credit for. So the healing of the identity that you have accepted about yourself must take place. And you must deny, and you must not give authority to anything that is trying to define you that God is not behind. 
We have in our orphanage some children whose parent is their grandfather, brother, uncle, or they don't know who their parents are at all. We have children in our orphanage who do not have a name. We, have, we had a girl years back that came to our orphanage and she had no name, 10 years old. No lineage, no idea of anything. So she goes to the judge at a particular age and the judge says, you don't exist. You need to pick a name. He said, you can call yourself plate, jar, car, just pick a name. And she picked our name. So without our permission, she thought she was worth being our daughter. So we automatically adopted her just because she did it. Today, she is married to a young man from the United States, and I think he's 25 years old, 26. He's getting his PhD in the next two years, and she has a beautiful baby, and they are extremely, let's say, prosperous. Because she said, my parents have told me I belong to them. So if I'm going to pick a name, let me pick the name of the only parents that I know. You see, what you think of yourself will control what you believe God will do for you. If you're a highly favored child in your family, well, you know your dad and mom will give you everything. If you know your dad loves you so much and so intently, well, you know you can go to him and say, hey, Pop, would you mind paying off my house? Sure, sweetie, I'll pay it off. Yeah, here we go. If you think your father hates you or doesn't like you, you're not going to ask him for anything because he doesn't like you. Praise the Lord. Everybody look at somebody and say, ooh. So not knowing who you are and not understanding your identity is how you let thieves enter your life and make you poor. Because in reality, Mephibosheth, who is the son of a prince, Jonathan, who is the son of a king, thought he was a dog. David says to him, I'm giving you back all the land of your father, Jonathan, and your grandfather, Saul. All the lands. I'm giving you all the servants back. They're going to work the land and just bring in the money. And all you have to do is be one of my sons, sit at my table, and I'm going to cover your crippleness so nobody will know you're crippled because you're at the king's table covered in the king's robes. See, nobody knows what sins you've committed except you. Only God knows what you've done. You know what you've done, but if what you've done is so bad that you can't forgive yourself, then you can never be who God wants you to be, and therefore you can never enter your true destiny. At some point, you have to forgive yourself for your past. 
at some point you have to decide that your past is not going to determine your future. At some point, you can't be like Mephibosheth and say, I'm crippled, I have dysfunction, so I'm a dog. You have to believe that the grace of God, with all his manifold sufficiencies, can change you from a worm to a butterfly, from a crawler to a flyer. Hallelujah. I had to do this. I had a terrible identity, and I had to do this. I had to believe what God said about me, and it changed everything about what I believed God could use me to do. So why don't you look at someone around you and say, you're looking pretty amazing right now. Tell somebody around you, you look like a masterpiece in the making. You don't have everything in there yet, but I can see the shades of a genius working on you. Hallelujah. How about taking a praise break and just praising God for that so far? Say, praise God. Now, let's talk about a few thoughts. Never accept an identity about you that doesn't look like Jesus. Don't accept that. And never say, I am this, if that is not something God believes about you. Somehow God thinks that he can change you, transform you, and make you into a weapon in his hand. So let's say today you're doing nothing for God. When God is through with you, there will be so many things God will do through you that actually every day will become a miracle day. Hallelujah. The real you has no limits. Say it out loud. The real me has no limits. No limits. So let's look at some of the things that define you. And before we go into that, that develop your identity, we're going to have some healing take place now. And let's talk about this for a second. When Jesus came into his ministry at the age of 30, he had lived in obscurity for 30 years. We really don't know anything that Jesus did except when he was 12 years old. We know that he's already wiser than everybody. But it wasn't his time to come forward, so he submitted himself, the Bible says, to his parents. And nobody knows what, what he did. We don't know if he did miracles in secret, or we don't know anything. However, there are like little indications. For example, when Jesus, when, when Jesus was at the wedding of Cana, he hadn't done any miracles yet. He was at the wedding of Cana. Mary, his mother, who knew him the best, came up to him and said, hey, we got a wine shortage. I need you to make me some wine. Now, in my thinking, this is not a Bible thing, it's just me thinking, how can she know that he can make wine if he's never done anything? He tells everybody else, whatever he says, do it. 
So my suspicion is something must have been going on in those 30 years that we do not know about. <laughs> not Bible, just a thought. But think about it. Mary had no doubt that her son could turn water into wine. Where do you get that confidence if Jesus has never done anything? What have you done for God so far? And do you think that it is important for you to do things for God? Does anybody believe that? Do you believe that your life should just be selfish and you get as much as you can for yourself? And you hold on to your ticket and verify it every Sunday to make sure you're going to go? And you keep your lifesaver to yourself and never throw it to the drowning people that you meet? That all the sick people you meet, you're not supposed to lay hands on them and they get healed? That anybody that's deformed in their brain, heart, soul, or mind, you're not supposed to have the power to fix that? Or do you believe that God has assigned to your life exploits, miracles, signs and wonders? Because whoever you are today, five years from now, the things God wants you to do, the you of today cannot do the, the things that are going to be asked of you five years from now. If you do not change when God tells you in the next five years, you will not be the person that can handle those miracles flowing through you. That's why you must continually change. Because God has miracles for you every year, greater and greater and greater. Praise the Lord. I like saying that. So, Jesus knew who he was. Everybody say it out loud. Jesus knew who he was. He didn't have any doubt about it. What did Jesus say? I am the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Do you know what he's saying to the, to the uh, Pharisees? That was total blasphemy. He then goes on and he says, hey, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Then he even freaks them out more. He says, if anybody sees me, They've seen the Father. And then in the garden, he says, I am. I am the salt. I am the bread. I am the door. I am Alpha. I am Omega. I am the Prince of Peace. I am Counselor. Emmanuel. God with us. I am the Christ. Woo! No one gets to the Father unless they go through me. Now, Jesus made a very powerful statement. He didn't say, no, a few will. No, he didn't say that. He said, no one goes to the Father unless they go through me. You can't bypass Jesus and get to the Father. And that's why you should never apologize for the way the Bible talks. Because once you become a universalist, meaning God, there's many ways to God, once you become that, you have taken away the power of Calvary and the power of Jesus being God. You can never reduce Jesus to one way 
of many ways to get to God. Otherwise, there's no need for evangelists, preachers, pastors, apostles, women of God, servants of God, churches, nothing. Because they can find their own way in their own way. The problem is some of us are living way below our potential, and that is why we're having this encounter tonight. Is we want to change the results of our existence. Hallelujah. So, how have you been defined so far? Whatever image you have of yourself, where did it come from? The first place is your DNA. That is the Adamic uh, nature that you have. This is the primary way that people decide who they are. Your desires, your urges, and your impulses are the things that most define a human being. And if you don't get a new nature to shut up the old nature, then the old nature is going to keep saying what you are. Praise the Lord. So, without God, you cannot overcome the DNA you have been born with. That DNA you did not ask for, but you have it. And you have these weird urges, impulses, desires, and you have weird personality traits. You have strange moods. You have insecurities of every kind, judgments of certain people, biases, prejudices, and maybe worse than that, you may have murdering emotions or other vile things that you may have desires for and all that coming from your Adamic nature, the DNA. The hope of the whole world is getting saved because when you get saved, you no longer have to be the slave of your DNA. Since your DNA is not new DNA, it has been passed down since the beginning of time, and so other people had your DNA and they practice those desires, urges, and impulses. And so they are in your body. And so when you are walking around, you may have an urge to, to drink whiskey, even though you've never drank whiskey. But if you don't feed it, then it starves to death and it loses its authority over you. And you overcome that aspect of your Adamic nature by obeying God, serving God, eating the word, feeding the word, dwelling in the presence of God. And then the old DNA dies off in all of its power with all of its tentacles and fangs and claws. And it dies out of your life. And the new you, born again in newness of life, rises up and takes over. And you don't, you're no longer what you said you were because God has made you a new creature. This is why people out there say, well, this is how I was born. And it's true. Doesn't have to be true. Amen. You just need a new nature right. and revelation of how it all works. Perhaps you're being defined today as a person by your old DNA. You wake up and you say, man, I wish I had a reefer right now. Wow, I'm a terrible person. What a horrible person. Oh, my gosh. You may be addicted to some terrible thing, pornography or lying or, or deceptions or uh, lusts of some kind, and you haven't overcome them. So these are the things telling you who you are. But they're all lies if you want them to be. 
Because being lazy is DNA. Being a workaholic is DNA. Someone, the, D, the, the genes you have, somebody had them before you and they were workaholics. That's why you want to be a workaholic, but your genes <laughs> And that's why some of you just want to sit and do nothing. Because you have the DNA of a sloth. And that's why some of you don't forgive easily because it's in your DNA to hold grudges. The person before you did it. The person before them did it. The person before them did it. The person before them did it. Now you have demons attached to it. Now you have curses attached to it. And now you have habitual patterns of genetic pre-programming that has to be broken by being born again. That's why it's called conversion. Because it's not intellectual salvation where you believe the gospel and believe what the Bible says, but you're never a new creature. Old things never pass away, and nothing ever becomes new. Until that happens, you're just intellectually informed, but you have not been transformed in your nature. Everybody with me? So things that define you would be your mother-in-law, for example your father, your mother, your friends. They may have opinions of you. Maybe everybody in the family has the same bad opinion of you. If they all have the same bad opinion of you, it's probably true. However, you have a cure. Let's all say it. I have a cure. We're not denying that we're all messed up, but we have a cure. Wave your hands, everybody, and say, I have a cure for me. I have a cure for being me. Hallelujah. Everybody say it. I have a cure for being me. That's why there's no condemnation for your nature that you inherited. There's only you making a decision to apply the cure to the disease of you. Praise God. I think we should give the Lord a hand for that. Come on. Many people take the position in your life of telling you who you are. You can't let that happen. For some of you, your past tells you who you are, and you believe in that past. All those bad things you did, they're always talking to you. This is who you really are. Who do you think you're fooling? God's not going to use you. He knows what you're really like. We got an identity problem. It's got to be resolved. Amen? Look at someone next to you right now and say, I don't know how to tell you this, but you're looking amazing right now. Tell them, you didn't look so good coming in, but whoa, you look really good right now. You have naysayers. They'll try to decide who you are. You'll have trauma, events that have happened in your life, abuses, betrayals. And then you have your sins, all the mistakes you've made, all the failures of your life. And they will tell you this is what you really are. You just have to choose a master and a definer 
today. You've got to choose who your master's going to be and who the architect of your future, of your personality, and of your identity is going to be. Who are you going to choose? Because your own husband may not like you. Your own wife may think you're terrible. Those are powerful voices. But at some point, you have to believe that there's a cure for you, being you. Are any of you crazy, periodically? I'm just saying. How many of you, periodically, are out of your mind? And you say to your wife or husband, I'm about to lose my mind. Please keep yours until I return. We flew over to Hawaii to preach during the whole COVID, and, and you couldn't get in there without a COVID test. And then they send you a list of all the approved places to get a COVID test. One of them is um, urgent care. So we went to urgent care, got our, got our COVID tests, 120 bucks each. And then we flew 10 hours there, got to Hawaii, Everybody's going through the list with their papers and all that. We get up to the counter, give her the paper. The lady says, oh, looks like we got a problem. This is not an approved place. I said, oh, oh, oh. Ta -ta 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 -ta. I looked it up. I said, yes, ma'am, right here, urgent care. She says, but do you see over to the right? It says Hawaii. I said, what does that have to do with anything? She says, that's urgent care in Hawaii. Well, how can I get a test over there? Here. And why would you put it on there? Because everybody's going to be confused. So this is what she says to me. You have to go back now. I said, ma'am, is there any reasonable place around here? How about if I get a test now at Urgent Care Hawaii? We'll just go get the test. You can't leave the... How about if you give me a test right now? <laughs> you have to go. So we had to buy, me and my wife, two more tickets, fly all the way back. My wife was feeling ill, so I said, go home. And I waited two days, got another approved place, and came back and fulfilled my obligations to the churches. My wife had an ear infection, so it was good that she went back anyway. Look at someone near you and say, oh. Well, this is what happened. When I knew that there was no solution, I felt the old, old man. Out here. And my wife spotted him. And she put her hand on my shoulder and she said, no. No. Don't do that. And I go, Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. And I'm walking around, hallelujah, that loud. Praise God. There were others that were denied, and they didn't have an answer, a cure, or a solution. And they let it out, baby. And I must tell you that I shouldn't be rejoicing in that happening, but it was a beautiful sound when I heard everybody being cussed out 
It was glorious, amazing. <laughs> Shouldn't confess that, but I had a joy. <laughs> you see, what is, where did you get your identity? Maybe from your dad or mom? Maybe your environment, how poor you were raised, or the violence in your home. Maybe you have repeated that violence, and so now you're just, that's who you are. We do not accept it. You cannot accept it, and it must not go forward. Praise God. Satan has particular identities. Satan himself does. Things that are attributed to him. And this, these are the things that have chewed on our life and eaten our identity away. Like Mephibosheth, who was crippled, and his dysfunction was who he was. You can read through the whole Bible, all the different people that did this. Moses stuttered, and that was who he was. He said, I can't speak. I have a stuttering problem. You see, Samson... He was a, a womanizer and an alcoholic. You have Solomon, who was an idolater. God told him, don't marry a lot of women, and he married 700 women and had 300 concubines on top of that. And in his last days and years, he walked away from God and built altars to foreign gods because he wanted to please his wives. So when we think of Solomon, the first thought is wisdom. The second thought is a really stupid person. The prodigal son. Sleeping with pigs, eating pig food when he's a prince. His mind came back, the Bible says. He said, I'll just go be a servant because even the servants have it really good at my daddy's house. The dad said, oh, you're mistaken. You're coming back like a dog, but you're still a prince in my eyes. Here's your robe. Here's your staff. Here's your ring. Here are your shoes. Now let's throw a party. My son is back. Hallelujah. You see, God never treats you like you have done a permanent job of damaging yourself. That's called the grace of God. Everybody lift your hands and say, thank you, Jesus, that all the stupidity of my life is not going to define who I am, and my identity is not the fruit of my mistakes. Hug someone next to you and ask him for $100. Come on. Praise God. In a minute, I'm going to minister to as many people as I can, and we're going to flow in the Holy Ghost. Now, what are these identities of Satan, because they're the things that have been chasing you since you were born. The first one, identity that Satan has, is that of a wolf. Says that he appears wearing sheep's clothes, but inwardly, he's a wolf. And these are the predators that have entered your life. And you must be healed of your predators. That which is devouring and ripping you apart, 
that which walked into your life at some stage of your life and began to chew on you. Put your hands on your chest and say, I renounce all the predators, their authority to define me. I renounce their power. I will not be designed by my predators nor be what they said that I am. I'm nine years old. My mother gets remarried. She marries a big old man, 230-something pounds, I believe, truck driver. I'm dropped off on a Saturday at her house because I've been raised by my grandmother at her house till I was nine. I'm dropped off at the house. No one is there except this man. I go in there. He waves to my grandmother, grabs me by the hair, and begins to hit me on the top of my head, cussing me out while he's doing it, saying, you're a B-word. Your father didn't want you. Neither do I. Give me any trouble, and I will ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. I was in shock since at my grandmother's, nobody ever raised their voice to me, and nobody had ever hit me. I was raised in tender, loving care up to that moment. A predator had entered my life. And it changed who I thought I was. I'm in kindergarten, first day of school. We go to Catholic school. I was raised Catholic. We're in there. My friend is in a different class, so I decide I'm going with him. So I go to that class. Sister Luke was there. Very powerful hands, extremely strong looking, very deep voice. She said, who are you? I said, I'm so-and-so, you're not on my list. Oh no, I was supposed to be over there, but I don't like that class, I'm gonna be in here. She grabs my ear, jerks me up, takes me to the blackboard, draws a circle, makes me stand on my toes, and then lets the class laugh for quite a while. My identity got crushed at that point. My dad leaves, never comes back. My identity was crushed at that point. And so on, and so on, and so on. What has happened to you? Who did what to you? And did they convince you that you were worthy of that abuse? Because you're so worthless that you're worthy to be treated like that, like all the orphans we have? We just got those five orphans. Their hands, we got them yesterday or the day before, their hands are bandaged because their father burned their hands and their ears. Five of them for misbehaving. Seven to ten more surgeries for each one. Skin grafts. Do you know what they said? We deserve it because we misbehaved. And when you don't do what God tells you, he will punish you because that's what their father, their pastor, told them as he burned their hands, burned their ears. Sadistic monster from hell.
Who are you? Why do you cuss? Because that's what you believe you are. Why do you throw the finger at people on the highway? Because that's what you think they are. Why do you hate people? Because you hate yourself. Why do you tell lies? Because you don't believe you're worthy of the truth. Do you see the patterns forming your identity and stealing the miracle life that God wants you to have? Say it out loud. I am not what my enemies say I am. I am what God says I am. The second identity of Satan is a serpent. Many of you have been, your identity has been formed by the serpents and snakes that have put poison in you in the form of lies about you. Venom. Put your hands on your chest and saying, I renounce all the poison in my head about myself. Wherever the poison came, it came from a serpent. And I do not submit to serpents. I do not believe serpents, and I do not listen to them. What I do with a serpent is cut its head off. Somebody say hallelujah. hallelujah. Every time you hear a lie, take your sword and cut the head off. Say, no, you will not rise again. Three. In the Bible, Satan has an identity as a vulture. What is a vulture? A vulture is a group of people that are attracted to the death that is in your life. And they come to eat you to pieces by gossiping about you, accusing you, finding fault about you, rejecting you, abandoning you, and leaving you. These are the vultures. And they will never let you change even if you change. They will keep you in that image, in that box, so that they can feel superior to you. Put your hands on your chest. In the name of Jesus, according to Genesis 15, 11, Abraham scattered the vultures off of the holy sacrifice. I scatter the vultures out of my life because I've never seen a vulture eating a moving cow. Can somebody say, holla, holla, baby, that's what I'm talking about. Four, Satan has an identity as a dragon. He's called the red dragon. Psalm 91.13, you shall tread upon the lion, the adder, and the dragon. Well, there are no dragons. However, it's the most powerful identity-making part of Satan because it is the figments of your imagination. What is dangerous about the dragon's breath is when it breathes on you, it makes you paranoid because it's your imagination running wild in a negative way. You must put an end to that. Put your hands on your chest. Say, I renounce the breath of the dragon, vain imaginations, every type of worry, and every type of paranoia that Satan would try to speak to me 
or breathe on me. I reject it. I renounce it. I will not be that, and I will not submit to that in the name of Jesus. Can we all praise him a little bit and say, I am being formed by the breath of God. For God took Adam out of the dirt, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. Do not let Satan breathe on you because he is a dragon and he will tell you things that will make you feel paranoid about yourself. Are you with me so far? Five. Satan is a traitor. So he is a Judas. And one of the people in your life that's going to form or try to form your identity are the traitors and betrayers that have entered and exited your life. Don't let them do it. They'll stab you in the back. They'll dig up your forgiven self. They'll go to the graveyard where God buried you, where all your sins are buried and forgotten. And after a year, two, 10, 20, or 30, they'll go to that graveyard, get the skeleton, and then tell everybody, this is what they did 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Here, look, everybody, this is what they did. Because they're the Judases. And they want to remind you that you're not a new creation. You're the same rotten old sinner that you always were. Don't let them do it. Put your hands on your chest. Say, I renounce Judas. And every person that speaks like Judas about me, including myself, in Jesus' name. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Six, Luke 10, verses 30 through 37. A man on the road, walking down the road, fell among thieves. They beat him, wounded him, stripped him, and left him for dead. These are the thieves. Satan's identity is that of a thief. A thief is a person who takes your confidence away. They are a person who believes that you are bad. They believe that there's nothing good about you. And they're going to tell you every day they can that you are bad, you are not good, you are no good, and they will make you feel like you should die. Like you don't have the right to be alive because you're so bad. And that is a thief. They don't build you up. They don't speak to you by faith. They don't sow life into you. They don't celebrate you. They don't breathe prophetically on you. They don't speak great things over you. They don't build your confidence. They don't build your strength. They don't tell you you can change the world. God in you can do anything. It's all about God in you. He's the hope of glory. He can do anything. They don't tell you that you're a miracle. They don't tell you that you're amazing. They don't tell you that all your sins have an expiration date and sooner or later you will overcome that problem. No. They just say, get away from me, you terrible thing. Go ahead and hug the people next to you because you're feeling a little weird right now. Go ahead and hug them and, oh, Jesus, I love you. You're amazing. Thank you, God. 
So, there we go. Now, to end this, let's go to the place where we, our identity is formed. All right? I gave you one thing, and that's your value. Everybody say, I'm priceless. I'm worth what God is worth to himself because he paid a price for me equaling himself. Hallelujah. I mean, just that one is worth everything. I mean, if you can't say that you're priceless, you just aren't getting it. You're not getting it. Remember that the way you change your behavior is by believing in something that is greater than your behavior. And that is the power of the cross. Lift your hands and say hallelujah. Where, do you, where is your identity formed? It's formed in the hope that comes from Calvary. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 17 through 26. The power of the cross. Jesus accomplished victory over all our enemies and all our weaknesses and all our failures at Calvary. So we go to Calvary when we fail. We go to Calvary when we don't when we're not who we should be and act bad, we go to Calvary, and from Calvary we're covered in the graces of God, and the graces of God give us the power to become like God in behavior and in other things because of his mercy, goodness, kindness, love, and all that. Calvary and all of its victories becomes a place we go every day. And we go to Calvary and say, Lord, I'm a little short on divinity in this area. I've got a lot of something rotten smelling stuff right here. I need a transformation. And God says, come on over here to the foot of Calvary. Come right over here and lay yourself at the cross and just let the cross heal you and deliver you. Let it break the chains off you. Let it break those bad habits. Let it heal your DNA because all healing comes from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and that is the beginning place where you must take yourself to be redefined. Two. 2 Corinthians 3.18 Beholding in a mirror the glory of God, we are transformed from glory to glory into His image. Do any of you want to change? Do any of you have anybody in your life that periodically tells you you need to change? Anybody? Doesn't look like anybody's forthcoming. You're all protecting everything. I ain't raising my hand. I ain't saying nothing. Glory to God. There's no right or wrong answer. It's just the fact that the word is transformation. The Greek word is metamorphosis. So you have to go to a place called metamorphosis. That place is called the cocoon of heaven. What does this mean? Well, it means that you're born a worm, and as a worm, you like dirt. That's how you know you're a worm. You like dirt. You feel more comfortable in a bar than church. When Willie sings, you come to life. When amazing grace happens, you feel guilty because you're still a worm. 
Worms eat dirt. Worms sleep in dirt. Worms dwell in dirt. Worms are constantly having to deal with the dirt that's in their lives. They always return to the dirt because that's where they feel their home is. A cocoon, when the silkworm wraps itself in silk, this is the image of what happens when you see the face of God. Whenever you see the face of God, a piece of revelation is wrapped around you. That revelation about you changes what you think about you. For example, when God is ready to promote you, he will send someone to offend you. If you forgive and love them, you're promoted. If you don't forgive and love them, you retest. I've told you this before, but this is called a revelation. Well, this revelation now tells me that my perspective towards being offended has totally changed. Instead of me getting offended at them, I now say, hey, a promotion is coming. All I got to do is forgive this person and love them. I love you. I forgive you. Here's some money. Can I buy you a house? Can I buy, you, can I buy your children? I mean, what do you want? Because the revelation has transformed the way you think, believe, and your perspective has changed. That's what a revelation does. So when you're fully wrapped in them, wings start growing. Nobody can see them except God. But because you're in the cocoon, beholding the face of God, through praise and worship, submission, adoration, obedience, and all the things we do, we see God, and seeing his glory changes us from a worm to a butterfly. We come out, and we never visit the dirt again. Because butterflies don't like dirt. They like to fly. And nobody ever says, when they go to a butterfly place, hey, look at that worm. Well, there's still a worm in the middle there, but nobody notices that. They just notice the wings and the colors on the wings. And that's what happens to you when you behold the face of God. That's only going to happen if you chase God, pursue God, run after God, throw yourself in front of God, and constantly be looking to God. Three. The potter's wheel, found in Jeremiah 18, 1 through 6. The potter's wheel is you being a piece of clay, God putting you on the wheel, and then God ripping things off you, pushing you, pulling you, stretching you constantly. One of the things I believe that we're going to have to answer to God for when we get to heaven, he's going to say, hey, Ivan, show me your stretch marks. He's going to want to see where I walked on water in obedience to him, where I stretched myself in obedience to him. God said to me, come and walk on this water. Well, the old me can't do that because the old me was very timid and shy. But the new person I am, yeah, let's go on the water, hallelujah, again. Well, now, after all these years, this is year 51 for me, 
I now have burned the boat, so I'm just permanently out on the water. And if I freak out at the waves, I'm going down. So I can't afford to take my eyes off of Jesus. <laughs> waves everywhere. You see your clay. Clay doesn't have a voice. Clay just sits there and lets God spin you. You're in a state of confusion and transition for years at a time as God is forming you into the vessel that he wants you to be. This is the identity that God is forming in your life. That's why God says, I don't pick a lot of smart people. I pick like the stupid people. Then I give them my wisdom and they confound all the wisdom of all the wise people without God. Amen? Hug someone next to you and say, I'll take $50 if that's all you can afford. Four. Luke 7, 37 and 38. Also Luke 10, 39. The feet of Jesus. Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. Revelation 1.17 Behold, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he said to me, Do not be afraid. I am Alpha and Omega. I am the beginning and the end. Luke 7.37 and 38 The woman with the alabaster box. She fell at the feet of Jesus, weeping and crying and worshiping, and then wiped his feet with her hair. Because it is at the place of worship where the real you meets the real God and the real God absorbs you into him and you come out with pieces of him that you did not have before that encounter. You have to keep yourself at the feet of Jesus if your identity is going to be formed the way he wants to form it. Then we have the furnace of fire. Everybody say, no. This is the place of testings and trials and some form of suffering, not suffering that comes from disobedience and not suffering that comes from the devil. We do not receive any of that suffering. That suffering we do not accept. We suffer for disobedience, but you don't have to. But there is a suffering, for example, when you love someone who doesn't love you back. There's a suffering to it. There's a suffering when one of your children or grandchildren is suffering and you cannot remove that suffering. That hurts. There is a suffering when you crucify your flesh and all the things you love about your flesh you can no longer do. There is a suffering in that. And now after 50 years of serving God, I know that there are holy sufferings that men who love God and want to be like God must go through. These are not the sufferings of sickness. These are not the suffering of disease. These are not the sufferings of judgment. These are not those sufferings. But the sufferings of the graces of God, where God teaches you to be patient when you can't be patient. And he says, be patient anyway. Long-suffering when you can't put up with it anymore. And he says, put up with it anyway sufferings, the sufferings Jesus went through. Doesn't the Bible say he learned obedience through the things he suffered? 
This is not a popular thing to say, but it is a true revelation that without it, you can never truly be fully Christ-like. Because I have compassion when I can feel someone's pain. And then finally, the last thing, the place where your identity is ultimately formed is God's Word. Take the Bible like medicine. Start in the book of Genesis, read it through Revelation. Highlight every scripture verse that jumps out at you. At the end of that, you'll have between 300 to 700 Bible verses. Those are the architects of your identity. Memorize those verses. They will redesign you from the inside out. You will become what those verses are. And in essence, you will transform your identity. Only what you remember has the power to keep changing you. If you do not remember it, you have received the grace of God in vain. He spoke to you through the pastor or someone. He gave your answers and solutions, but you didn't write them down. You didn't memorize them. You didn't treat them as sacred, so they just went in one ear. You shouted as they were passing by, and then they left you. You have to remember what God tells you for the rest of your life if it's going to keep having transforming, healing power. That's why you take notes. I suggest you not take notes on everything somebody says because you're not going to be able to remember 52 sermons of Pastor Scott. But you can remember two things he said from every sermon that's a hundred things. And if you multiply that by 20 years, that's a lot of revelation. But you know God spoke that to you. You're not just being like a, a college student just trying to take notes on everything. My God, I was so my God. Because there's some people that have so much stuff coming out of them, you can never write down everything. You can't. But as you sit there and your body explodes by something somebody says, you go, oh, that's for me. You wake up a different person because your mind is healed, conscience, intuition, communion, emotions, will, they're all transformed. You get a new personality, and then God does amazing things through you. Praise the Lord. So what are you to end this? What are you? Everybody say it with me. I am a hospital. Say it out loud. I am a hospital for the sick and miserable people of the world. Say it out loud. I am a medicine. I cure diseases. My personality is medicine. My language is medicine. My physical affection is medicine. My respect of people is medicine. My power to celebrate people is medicine. My enjoyment of every person is medicine. My ability to wash dirty feet of worthless people is my medicine. I am a servant. Say it. 
I wash feet for a living. I am not a selfish, self-absorbed jerk. Everybody say it, hallelujah. hallelujah. Say it, I am a chain breaker. I set people free. I set captives free. I break the bondage over people. I have the authority of the name of Jesus, the word of God, and the blood of Jesus, and I use it to set people free. I am a safe place for people to come and mend and be restored, for I am a carrier. Say it, I am a carrier of the oil and the wine of the Holy Spirit. I am not the tail. I am part of the head. Blessings chase me everywhere I go. My enemies that come in one way have to flee in seven different directions. I'm blessed at home. I'm blessed at work. I'm blessed when I'm driving my car. I'm blessed when I'm alone. And I'm blessed when I have children. All my children shall be taught, trained, and mentored by the Lord. Great shall be their peace. They shall never taste darkness. They shall never feed on the bread of affliction. They shall never lack. They shall be generous. They shall rescue orphans and widows, take care of the poor, build a local church, win souls, and expand the kingdom of God. My children are the music of healing. They make the sound of joy everywhere they go. My house is a healing house and a house of prayer. When people enter my home, they feel the presence of God and the healing of God and the joy of God. I do not entertain demons. I do not partner with curses. I reject evil in all its forms. I love the people of the world and serve them by being Christ-like. I am a refuge. I am a hiding place. I am a comforter. I am an encourager. I edify people. I cast demons out of people and they come out screaming and they never come back. I have a trumpet in my hand. It is the trumpet of the Lord and I blow that trumpet of liberty and the trumpet of freedom everywhere I go. I am not a leech. I am not a tick on a dog. And I am not a dog. I am endowed with power from on high and the fires of God are upon me and the anointings of heaven are upon me and Satan is exiting my mind and Jesus is entering my mind. I will rescue people from suicide. I will rescue people from abortions. I will be generous and give and pay people's houses off. I will take care of widows, buy them refrigerators and stoves and make sure that all their bills are paid, that their heat works, 
Their air condition works because I am like Jesus. I am not a selfish, self-absorbed, greedy person. That was the old me that is buried in baptism and I am resurrected in new life. All praise and all glory to Almighty God. Can somebody shout a little bit and act like you've been to church tonight? Ah, ha, ha!